Hey, Port fam, I've got to apologize to y'all for the brief episode and awful audio quality as I've suddenly started dealing with major encoding lag issues. Out of the blue, thank you, OBS. Uh, but a super big apology goes out to my awesome guest, Matthew Hidalgo, as what was a couple hour conversation ended up only being around half an hour of usable content. We'll get you on again. And with that, on with the show. Hello, horror fan, best friends, English Knights, and welcome to the 33rd episode of Murders with Mertens. I am your host, Joe, and this is a podcast about horror, true crime thrillers, folk horror, body horror, sci-fi horror, the horror adjacent, thrillers, the psychologically terrifying, scary films in general. Each episode, I sit down with a guest and discuss one of their favorite scary films so that we can gush about everything that makes it just so damned cool. Viewers, thank you for the support. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe if you are so inclined. It all helps to get the word out and bring some much-needed love to this little podcast. Audio listeners, the show is also available on podcast services around the world, like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so don't forget to leave a rating when you stop by. Five stars is always appreciated. But enough of all that, enough of all that housekeeping tonight. I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming for his murders with Merton's debut one Matthew Hidalgo, Matt, how the hell are you? Hey, I'm doing okay. I'm recovering over a uh, strep throat. So that's a positive. Yeah. So yeah. You were, um, not for the first time. Mm, good. Yeah. You were definitely under the weather. Um, yeah. 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 So glad to hear you doing better. Your voice sounds good. Um, it's, I, I, I know you got a couple of little ones, uh, keeping you busy too. So it's never fun dealing with that kind of stuff when you are sick yourself. So everybody else doing okay. Everybody healthy. Thankfully, no one else got sick. My wife was able to pick up the slack for what I had to, uh, rest on. So that was awesome. But yeah, yeah. Everyone's doing good. Good. Good, good, good. Um, well, tonight's episode features 2007 Zodiac, directed by David Fincher, written by James Vanderbilt, and based on the books by Robert Graysmith. Matt, why Zodiac? Zodiac is hands down, and this is this is a big statement, my favorite Fincher film. Like, I love Seven. I, I, love, I love Alien 3. Aliens cubed, however you want to Unapologetically, say it. I love that one as well. Especially that um I, I can't remember if it's the assembly cut or whatever. The one that's also part of the whole uh quadrilogy box set thing. Yeah. Um it's the assembly. It's a, yeah, it's a really good cut. Um it is. But yeah, yeah. The whole I can, religious aspect that he goes through, like the religious iconography of that film, like fits mm-hmm. so well with um ridley scott and then um giger's artwork like that styling Mm -hmm. they go surprisingly really well together well let me tell you if you're a fan of alien 3 make sure to check out the uh the comic book adaptation of william gibson's original script Ooh. Yeah, it's weird. It's all get out. Uh you can get it in graphic novel format. Um it's it's a thing. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. All the religious stuff that you mentioned, um, it, there was originally supposed to be a thing with like space communists or whatever. And yeah, that is all that stuff is present in this comic. It is 
weird. Uh, so yeah, dark be sure. Yeah, definitely Dark Horse. Yeah, yep. of course, of course. Um, although not out of the nineties, it's much more recent. Um, yeah. So Dude, no, I grew up on like nineties Predator and Aliens Dark Horse run. Classic, some really good stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely same. Uh that stuff was like my big, big jump into comics in the nineties. So yeah. yeah, we are we are simpatico, sir. Um but <laughs> yeah, uh Zodiac is your favorite Fincher film. That's cool, man. Mm -hmm. It's it um it is. You know, we were talking a little bit before the show about how, you know, maybe it doesn't have all the aspects of a typical David Fincher film, but it's certainly got like the, the fun camera techniques that he typically employs. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the cast that you find, uh, in a lot of his movies. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I very much enjoy this one. Yeah, if mm. you watch the making of, it certainly has his uh, numerous amount of takes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he he's absolutely famous for that. Um, oh yeah. Uh, oh, and, and for as long as the film is, you know, it's it's creeping up on oh. what two and three quarter hours, something like that. It's yeah. uh, yeah. yeah, it's um, it's a long movie, and I think that's only fair for a film that you know takes place over the span of something like four decades. So, um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's, God, I don't even know if I could definitively say what my favorite Fincher film is, but this would absolutely have to be up there. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I get why it's not everyone's cup of tea. It's like a lot of the big stuff happens at the beginning. And mm -hmm. the rest of the film has to deal with obsession. And so you're not quite getting as much throughout the majority of the film. But I find that so much more interesting because you're really getting to deep dive into the characterization of Hall's Robert Graysmith. Mm -hmm. And you're really kind of living in his head, just his head, for a good half of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, at the end of the day, the film's much more about him and his obsession than it is the actual killer himself, you know, whoever that may or yeah. may not have been. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the film would definitely like to force you towards uh, Graysmith's conclusion there, yeah. but uh, yeah, but uh, you I know, you noticed in your research, it's uh, yeah <laughs> yeah it's hey it, it would be nice to put a little bow on this story um but um yeah that's definitely open for debate um <laughs> yeah but uh it's one of those reminders like researching that this is based on ray smith's books not yes. the historical events that took place especially yep. when you towards the end and that bite starts to come out it's that's really it's hard to squeeze it any other way than you know it pointing to spoiler alert can i say him yeah <laughs> arthur lee allen like it's yeah yeah as, as much as yeah. yeah 
Yeah, it's I, I would um, like to eventually dive into his books. I, I think it would be a fascinating read. St- but uh, yeah, yeah, he's certainly got his biases there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of uh, Arthur Lee Allen, uh, the scene where we're introducing him, it's Ooh. probably yeah, probably one of my favorite bits of the film. But I, in this rewatch, oh, I. I noticed something um, that I, I don't know that I've ever noticed before. They really veer into Silence of the Lambs territory with this because oh, definitely. you're getting the direct eye contact with the camera thing, which is like the bulk of Silence of the Lambs. Uh, and you feel like you're being interviewed or interrogated in some ways. It's, um, yeah. It's very effective. I like it a lot. It and I can't believe I never noticed that bit too. Uh, Cause I've seen yeah, this movie like, many times. Ruffalo didn't say anything until he asked for the watch. Mm-hmm. Like he is, he is very like listening and giving a little facial tips, but he doesn't say anything until he asked for the watch. And he walked, he asked for the watch very politely, oh, but you see like it kind of steps. Um, I can't remember the actor's name, but Arthur Lee Allen, the character, kind of sets him up, sets him aback. Mm-hmm. It's the whole like I flash him the watch. No, no, no. Can I see the watch? Yeah, really yeah. good scene. Really strong scene between yep. all three of the or all four of the actors in that scene too. Yeah, you, God, they're, they're, what a stacked cast this movie has. I know. it's it's nuts man it's uh, you know like we talked about there's a lot of fincher regulars but um yeah yeah gyllenhaal first first for him yep yep i think i read it was a jennifer aniston recommend recommendation yeah i read that too and fincher was already a fan of his from donnie darko so um but we're, we're not here to talk about donnie darko uh what, what were some things that uh jumped out at you in this rewatch uh let me think i mean honestly the score not the music used like not, not the, the soundtrack track, but yeah used for the film but the actual score written for the film i didn't really notice it because the soundtrack takes center stage to oh, yeah. encapsulate how, like what period in time that's taking place and the score is really good like yeah. it's very fitting. It moves the story without having those silent beats of nothing going on or the transitions between licensed music to licensed music. Like the score does a yeah. good beat of keeping in step with Graysmith's journey from start to finish. Yeah. It's um it's funny because the the original cut of this film was so much longer, but and ultimately I guess Fincher had to cut out a ton of licensed music because he was using mm-hmm so much to signal you know the transitions of time and yeah and uh ultimately you know the the story progressing over the years um what what we're left with is still just a banger soundtrack there's so many good tracks on this one you know not the least of which the donovan's on uh hurdy-gurdy man but uh favorite yeah nothing like some psychedelic folk uh Yeah, yeah. Uh, with gunshot background. Yeah, yeah. It's um, God, it's this is just such a fun, well-crafted film, and I, I, I just don't remember at the time many people talking about it. 
This was, I agree. What? Like 16 years ago, something like that. And, and I don't, I I didn't see it in the theater. I I remember my, yeah, I know. Uh, fairly certain my ex and I, we rented it through the disc version of blockbusters, Netflix thing that they used to have. Um, yeah. And that's how we saw it. Very familiar with that. Oh yeah. That was always such a confusing thing of mailing it back or turning them in at the store or whatever. And yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. So as you're aware, the policy when it started was you could return the disc at the store, swap it out for something in the store. So you didn't have to pay extra rental. It was just a hand in, take one out. Mm-hmm. Well, when they changed that policy, they didn't notify the stores. So all of a sudden, we get customers coming in trying to do that, and the computer system saying, no, that's not how that works anymore. So we had to reach out to the managers going, like, what's going on? This isn't, oh, Blockbuster Corporate changed the policy. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yep. Thanks for leaving us in the dark on that one. Oh, yeah. That's always a stupid conversation. Like a customer brought in their email, like their email printout saying that the policy changed before we ever heard back from corporate. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. First of all, that they printed the email out to show you. But second of all, yeah, that you had to get that from a customer. That's, oh, man. Yeah. But yeah, we saw a lot of movies that way. And we got into a lot of older horror films through that whole thing too, because they had such a nice selection of that kind of stuff. Uh, especially uh, as far as newer things like uh, those after dark horror fest films. And um, oh. th- those were always available through blockbuster. Uh, a lot of those are really fun. So that, mm-hmm. that, that was cool. But, uh, yeah, didn't get to see this in a theater. Don't remember hearing it talked up very much at the time, other than the fact that it was just, it was there. Um, yeah, just a shame, but it's one that kind of stuck with me over time. And, you know, eventually I'm like, this isn't easy to access. I just need to buy a copy of it. So, you know, definitely, you know, snagged a Blu-ray and, uh, yeah, this would be a really good 4K disc too. I, I don't know if there's any plans for that, but oof, it's such a good looking film. Uh, yeah, I ended up getting it on DVD when I worked at Blockbuster because used films. Like I got sure. the discount, and then they announced the special edition, which had the director's cut, and it came in one of those like cardboard sleeves that looked like one of the letters, like the cover is like the letter addressed in San Francisco Chronicle. And I was like, I need to have that. Need to have that. Never got a copy of it. And now that's like, you go to the store and get a Blu-ray. That is the cover art. Yeah. yeah. That's absolutely the one up there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know what this would benefit from? Criterion release. Criterion or Arrow. One of those two. Yeah. Uh, Arrow does a very nice job on stuff too. It's, um, um, I, I feel like they tend to skew a little bit more towards the pulpier stuff, the, um, more, uh, cult favorites, but yeah, this, this would definitely work as a criterion disc too. Um, I could see that. 
I I know the second disc on that thing's got a ton of features, and that's mm-hmm. you know perfect for Criterion. You know, they just need to find some you know additional stuff because that's part of the fun of you know the release. Oh yeah, well. and and then you need somebody to you know write an extensive pamphlet to uh, you know put in as a pack in because that's also part of their shtick. Um, yeah. Now, who would you like to write the Criterion insert for a Zodiac release? Who would I like, or who do I think they'd get? Because I think they get <laughs> Robert Graysmith because he can't shut up about Zodiac. <laughs> yeah, I think that would probably be an easy get. Now, who would you like? <laughs> Honestly, I would like Stephen King. I would okay. like Master for himself to write. Because again, like this is yeah a thriller, it's a drama, yeah. But the shit that happens in this is horrific and oh, yeah. it's true. Like this is a true horror. I mean, in this situation, fiction, but the fiction comes from some of the details, not necessarily the actual crimes themselves. So yeah, mm-hmm. I would like to see Stephen King. I feel like Stephen King could. I'm honestly curious about where Stephen King was during this period in his life yeah like him and Ted Cruz yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah yeah it's um it, we're, we're we're definitely going to beat that dead horse um but uh yeah uh I know Stephen King could write a decent essay about this um uh-huh. he's done his fair share of uh essays about film and other things that he enjoys so yep I could I could buy that for sure um I would buy that um but yeah this 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 could be a fun 4K release for Criterion why the hell not yeah, I know it seems like they're kind of moody too, because it's oh, not, yeah. it's obviously not indie, but it's definitely more leaning for drama than it would towards like horror. So yeah, not and really. doing horror too. yeah, yeah. Not that they don't have their fair share of horror films. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just the, the film's got a good sense of humor. Yeah, it does. It really does. Um, you know, not just the interactions with, um, Robert Downey Jr.'s Polly Avery and Jalen Hall's Graysmith. But, um, yeah, so many of the uh, little interactions throughout the thing. There is a decent amount of kind of low-key comedy, I guess. Um, I would say like a dry humor. With yeah. a lot of, some of the line deliveries are definitely humorous. Uh, it, it, I still keep thinking about the awesome cast, too. Um Brian Cox sticks around for Demount as uh, the attorney that uh, Zodiac wants to take his call yep. for you know, the morning show and everything. Um, he's always that good. Scene. Yes. On the rewatch, the scene, I completely forgot it was in Zodiac on the phone. Completely forgot. So I'm like, oh my God, like this was, this was what he sounded like. This is like nuts. And then after the fact, like, you know, a scene or two afterwards being like, oh, that was him. That was a call from the mental institution. I was like, fuck. You got me. <laughs> you got me. Uh, God, just the different phone call that Graysmith gets throughout the film. Uh, just just the breathing. You know, if that's all he allows. Yeah, that's some creepy shit. Um, I've got to ask. I've got to ask. What would you say is your scariest or most tense moment in the film? Ooh. Something that really sticks with you, like oh, shit. 
the scene where he follows the protectionist to his home and and he realizes that there's very much potential for his life to be in danger. Uh, not just because there may be somebody else in the house and the guy is claiming that he, they're alone, but also that he's going to try to get uh, confirmation about handwriting school. Uh, I, I think it was right. Um, and yet, uh, oh, uh, Robert. I know there's, there's so many threads in this hard to keep them off. Yeah. But then it turns out, no, it's actually the projectionist that lettered all the posters. He's talking to the person who, you know, put together the clue he's tracking down. Uh, he just flies up those stairs and, you know, you got the double cylinder deadbolt on the door and he's not getting out without a key. Yeah. It's, um, that is a very creepy tense scene. Absolutely. Yeah. For me, it doesn't pop the beginning where after the initial murders happen and Zodiac does that phone call, they, you know, interspose, like, over the actual scene itself. Like, so you're watching the cops come upon um, the surviving male victim against the car, and you're hearing the Zodiac phone call. That phone call sticks with me. That ending of goodbye. Oh, dude, like, I can't. For me, that is the worst sensation. Like, ah. Yup. Uh, speaking of that particular murder, um, the uh, the younger and older actors portraying Mike, uh, uh, great casting with uh, Jimmy Simpson as the older version. Yeah, um, they have such good similar. You know, a lot of that's hair and makeup and shit too, but you know, no, they pull that off. Um, you know, you don't always get that in biopics. You know, as much as I think the the, the genre of you know a period piece, you know, of something like this. Uh, Certainly, those types of details have improved over the years of filmmaking. But, uh, yeah, it, oftentimes people have nothing like uh, their uh, real-world counterparts. Okay, now Matt, I know there was something about the score that you wanted to discuss. Yes, to back on that, the sound designer that Fincher hired for the film, Ren Kleiss, I think is how you pronounce his name, he, when designing the sound for the film, Noted that there was no score. Of course, Fincher didn't want to have score at the time. He just wanted to use licensed music. So he, what is it? He started inserting scores from pre from prior films to just illustrate that, hey, there's no musical accompaniment in the background of the scene. This is what it sounds like to have that. And so he, so David Shire ended up scoring the film based upon Fincher's enjoyment of the conversation, which I thought okay. was really interesting how that kind of all fit together. Cause we yeah, could have ended up with a film with just licensed music, which isn't bad, but no, yeah, no score is good. Yeah. And it's funny because so often they use like temporary scores and then they end up influencing the way a score turns out. It's like how everything in so many action sci-fi movies ends up sounding like the score to aliens because they yeah. typically use the score to aliens to do those temp scores. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's very cool. Uh, yeah, I like that. Since you bring that up, I will say one of my favorite scores in horror of all time is the original Alien score because it is so subtle. It is mm -hmm. just so 
almost almost silent for the entirety of the music of the movie that when it does happen it happens and it's so fitting so beautiful ah yeah i could go on horror (laughs) horror music is definitely a big thing for me like i'm a huge fan of scored music so like when horror actually makes full use of that like hereditary it i can't picture that film without that score Oh, and that's a good one. That score on its own, like that score on its own is horrific. Like it is so unnerving. It's so unsettling. Like it puts you into that environment without having any visual representation. And I feel yeah. like that's for a score, like that's what you need. Yeah. One of my favorites that I don't hear enough people bring up is the score to The Ring, the, uh, the Gore Verbinski American oh, remake. It's really good. It's, it's good. Uh, I, I really wish he got a little more praise and maybe it did at the time because that's a film. Not enough people continue to bring up. I know parts of it are kind of dated just because of technology moving on, but it works as a good period piece. And it's an absolute banger remake of an already great. Film. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's probably one of the downsides to it as like a memorable horror is especially of the era, it's very much like, well, it's not the Japanese film. And it's not, like, it wasn't trying to be. Like, reference is a Japanese film. Yeah, like, there's it, a lot of beats the like, same, but, yeah, it's it's definitely different enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah and in its own right, an absolutely great film. Uh, they, they knocked yeah. it out of the park with that one. It's, it's not a car copy. For, well, like, that's the that's okay. It wasn't a car copy. That's, that's what one of those things where, yeah, it's, ju- it's a justified remake in that regard. Yeah. Not cash in, <laughs> you know. Not that I think remakes are necessarily bad outright. I know a lot of people, you know, get a little worked up when they hear that, you know, something is. I mean, I'll, I'll, to be fair, I was one of them. Uh, I was not wild about hearing about uh, Train to Busan being uh, remade okay. as, yeah, uh, you know, this one. I, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's come before too long here. I but I, I've heard enough people, um, you know, ultimately, you know, praise the people that are working on it, and I'm willing to do that. And I, I absolutely don't mind those, you know, 20 years later, modern remake type remakes. No. Uh, those are, you know, sometimes not wonderful, but sometimes pretty damn good. Um, you know, let's give it this way. In the 80s, everybody was remaking horror films out of the 50s. And, you know, in, in the you know 2010s, everybody was remaking horror films out of the 80s and the 90s. So, you know, it's, it's always cyclical. It's always going to continue to happen. It's all right. Uh, don't be my Friday the 13th remake. <laughs> I would go that remake. Never dream of it. Um, that's one I haven't <laughs> seen in quite some time, actually. Um, oh, that'd be worth, it is. Yeah, fun. that'd be worth it a watch for sure. Yeah, most definitely. Yep. Um, so but, what did you think about the CG used in this film? You know, honestly, I did not find much noticeable. I'm sure a lot of blood splatter is CG. Um, yep. The blood in the film is CG. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's badly. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't think it's badly done. Um, yeah. yeah, it's um, it, 
that's the good thing about this film because it's from 2007 and that was right smack dab in the period of uh films particularly some horror films were all shot on handheld dv cameras uh like consumer grade from the time like uh you know danny boyle's 28 days later um and you know films that have such specific like or hell even david lynch with Red empire that have yeah. such a horribly nasty rainy look because you know they're just standard deaf video and if you have a DVD of one of the one, you absolutely don't have the need to buy a 4K upgrade or a, let alone a Blu-ray of any of these because they're still going to look the same. It's, you know, other than maybe just a little bit of stuff being cleaned up a little, um, the uh, Inland Empire uh, Criterion release is the uh, AI-assisted up-res that David Lynch oversaw himself. Um, it, it does look quite a bit better, but it's... That's fair. It, it's one of those movies that will forever have that place in that time because of the style of shooting. Whereas Zodiac just looks gorgeous. It's, it's those films will continue to look gorgeous. And yeah, they, again, really not noticeable to me, the blood it's, uh, oh, some shots of some of the, some of the Bersings. Mm-hmm. And then you also like, juxtapose that with the large shots of the cityscape. Like, Fincher knows what he's doing. Like, he knows how to shoot them. And that is apparent throughout this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's funny how all those um, you know people that came up doing commercials and music videos are just music masterful videos. filmmakers. You know, um, I mean, even to a certain degree, Michael Bay, the guy can you know he can shoot a damn film. He makes high play movies. Yes, he does. Like shooty shooty boom boom. Credit to him. Like I think he's a better filmmaker than storyteller. Yes, so it's like a very movie. Like it's a really good shot. That oh, yeah. transformer movie has really good shots. The story could have used some work. But yeah, yeah, yeah. like you no, know, it looks like he has some good looking shots in it. He knows yep. how to direct a film when he gets out of his own ass. He knows how to direct a film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, shout out to the people, you know, the, the working, you know, I don't say working man, but you know, working person director. Um, you know, the, the absolutely earn their stripes with uh you know stuff like that because you, they got the chops yeah again apologies for the rough episode if you want to follow matt you can find him on all the socials at the right hidalgo that's right with a w-r-i-t-e and this has been murders with mertens a horror film podcast thank you for letting us tickle your ear holes please like share and subscribe if you're so inclined i'll be back soon enough with another episode but until next time stay spooky everyone got to apologize to y'all for the brief episode and the awful audio quality as I've suddenly started dealing with major encoding lag issues. But a super big apology goes out to my guest Matthew Hidalgo as what was an awesome couple hour conversation ended up being around half an hour of usable content. And this is just falling off. Fuck.